investors would like bring young women into our pitch and would be like, Jenny's going to join because it's a women's health topic. And I would think Jenny is 28 and I bet she's fucking brilliant, but she has no more knowledge about menopause than you do as a young man likely like we aren't born with this innate knowledge of how our body will progress we're you know experiencing things day to day and that's kind of that that's andrea berkowitz the co-founder and ceo of vera health a startup improving women's health beginning with the menopause Welcome to Secret Leaders from Kindling Media. I'm Dan Murray-Serta, and we're here to learn from exciting founders. Now, I loved speaking with Andrea because she's just so honest. And it was honestly just great to learn about the menopause, the thing that affects half the planet, but it's hardly talked about. Imagine that, solving a problem for 50% of the population. Now, that is a serious addressable market. But who is Andrea other than an American building her global health startup in London? I grew up in a small town in Ohio called Athens. It's a university town, which is a really cool way to grow up. We lived right off campus. uh, So there were always young people around. When I go visit my parents now, I think it's quite weird. Like everyone is still 20 and, you know, they're 70 now. (laughs) So it's a little bit of a time capsule. My parents are South African, which was certainly not the norm in this small university town, which did make a big difference. I think, you know, we were different. My parents sounded funny. (laughs) And I think when you're the kid of an immigrant, you do a lot of translating, like even as a young kid, you know, mom, this is why the prom is important. I wish I could take that back. Or (laughs) getting a driver's license at 16 is pretty shocking. (laughs) But yeah, it also meant that, you know, we had a lot of discussions growing up about, I grew up in the 80s and the early 90s, which was obviously an incredibly complex and horrible time in South Africa. And so that was a big part of my childhood and a big part of kind of my introduction to politics and to morality and to, you know, the world at large. It's a big world. We all have responsibilities in it. I think 10 years ago, you could not have convinced me that I would be an entrepreneur or a founder. And my dad is both an engineer and a founder. And I think those things affected me in different ways. So as an engineer, how things worked was a big part of our uh, growing up. We lit things on fire. We made chemical explosions. We built and shot off rockets. I spent a Saturday measuring circles and uh, diameters to find out that pi was in fact always true. Like that sort of like understanding how things worked, being inquisitive, the scientific method, like everything's complicated, figure out what variables are moving, isolate one, find out the answer. Like that was definitely from him. And I'm super grateful for that. I obviously didn't become an engineer much to some disappointment, but um, that kind of like- disappointed? Oh, that would be so cruel to say because he is so proud of me and so excited that I was able to like study whatever I wanted, flourish however I wanted. But he would have been like, super chuffed (laughs) if I had become an engineer. And then as a founder, you know, my dad worked on commercializing a piece of technology called the Sterling Engine from basically his PhD in the 70s in South Africa to like now. And that is a very long founder journey. But it did mean that like, there was someone building a company in the background my whole life. And I think by osmosis, not a technical term here, I guess I did kind of take in how complicated it is, how many people it actually takes to build something, and also just how like 
committed to doing something that you have to be like there was never a doubt for me that my dad enjoyed work and he loved like figuring out this problem he'd set his mind at and I guess in retrospect I just hadn't found that yet and then when I did kind of come to the thing I'm working on now, I was like, oh, this is interesting. This is complex and fascinating. And I want to do this. And I want to find the right people to do this with. And this is what I'm going to do for a long time. And so I think, in fact, my dad and I have been able to connect a lot over this lately in a way that I'm like really grateful for. So fast forward uh, a little bit. Where did your career start? My career started in Johannesburg, South Africa for McKinsey. So I went to undergrad in the U.S. And then, well, I realized I could do whatever I wanted, which is an amazing privilege. um, And I could get a job anywhere. And so I decided to apply to some jobs in South Africa because I thought this was an opportunity to spend some time with my grandmother, to get to know my cousins and their children and like have this extended family life that I hadn't really had growing up. So I interviewed for McKinsey in South Africa and I remember them even saying like, are you sure you want to move to Johannesburg? And I was like, yes, definitely. I sure do. It was a good place for me, it turned out. And I stayed there for a long time. I had an opportunity to work all across Africa. I did get to spend tons of time with my grandmother. I have a much better relationship with my cousins. I'm a godparent to, you know, one of their daughters. And that is something like I am really grateful for. And I really thought I was going for two years. And I didn't. I was there until 2016. Another amazing opportunity, which I never could have expected, was I also got to work all across Africa. So I worked on maternal health in Namibia and family planning in other parts of Africa. And that's where this kind of early interest in women's health like really took hold. And I really thought my career and my life was going to be spent on kind of the like in the public sector consulting sphere, you know, helping governments do important things. That's not where we are now, but that is kind of what I thought I would do for a really long time. The decision to quit came really quickly. It was also came at the end of the year and that helps, right? There's something about the calendar that just like people have a frame of reference. It's like we start anew in January. And so a lot of things came together and I just knew in December that I was not going to do this anymore. And then Coincidentally, at that moment, there was an email going around that um, the Gates Foundation was looking for paternity cover to run their Middle East office um, for a year. And I looked at that message and I thought, you know what? I don't want to do what I'm doing right now. I don't know what I want to do next. There's no way this won't be cool. And it all came together really quickly. And so I went and had this very cool year. And in that year, I got to be like out of what I'd been doing and into something new that was felt important and serious and interesting. And I think that helped break the seal, this idea that like McKinsey is the only place that gives you exciting, interesting, challenging, thoughtful work. I mean, that's so obviously not true, but it's all I'd known. And so I got to do this interesting, thoughtful, great work in another context in philanthropy. And then the year came up And I have to admit, I was like, oh, crap, I have to figure out what it is I'm going to do now. And I then actually decided to take a bunch of time off. 
that was also a big decision, right? It's kind of odd in your late 30s at a party when people are like, what do you do? And you're pretty used to saying what you do. And it's like, oh, I... Uh, um, Early retired. <laughs> I will work again, but I don't right now. I got great advice from friends who had taken time off. At the end of 2018, I went to this Beyonce concert in Johannesburg. And I was walking around before she went on with a friend who'd taken time off. And he was like, take more time than you think you need. Do not pick up the first interesting thing that comes to you. (laughs) Figure out what you're going to say to people when they ask what you're doing. But that stuff, it stuck with me. I was like, okay, this has structure. I'm doing this now. And I am taking this time to think about who I am, what I want to do. So I did that. Unfortunately, I cannot stay in the United Kingdom indefinitely without a job. Why, why were you here? What brought you to London in, in this journey as well? I moved with McKinsey. But yeah, I loved London, love present tense London and um, feel really at home here. And so wanted to stay. So I took this time off. It was 2019. And quite early on in that year, I read... Um, Caroline Criado Perez's book, Invisible Women. Well, that's a lie. I listened to it. You decide if that's reading. Oh, you're preaching to the choir here. I'm Mr. Audible. And, you know, I read, I read X many books this year, and then someone's like, you listened to them. I'm like, okay, I listened to them, sure. Okay. Well, you pick your verb, but I participated in this book, <laughs> and I loved it. And it's so... Um, Irritating in so many ways. Have you read it? No, I've, I've, I've not, but it's been recommended to me a couple of times, actually. So I do need to get round to it. And I, I, I am familiar with the themes and why that is infuriating, for sure. But please, but please actually share, share, share some stories from the, from the books that people know. Chapter after chapter is just this like really thoughtful breakdown of how the gender data gap is affecting the quality of care or the quality of products or safety, all sorts of things. And it kind of really tackles this idea that we don't collect data on women. And if we do, we don't necessarily sex disaggregate the data that we do collect. And all of this just means that stuff doesn't work. So this chapter, The Drugs Don't Work, explains how and why women have not been have not been allowed to participate in basically you know clinical testing or a lot of the data collection exercises that happen in health and why healthcare is built on kind of the default male experience and uh, data set it was infuriating make no mistake this book is irrit- is upsetting it, and it is but i came away from it with like there is a business here, not one business. There are 10 businesses. There are a hundred businesses. You could make PPE and safety equipment that's actually designed for women. And that would have a huge impact. Apparently someone needs to be designing buses and safety belts for women. And that would have a huge impact. And if we want to build products for women's healthcare, like there is an opportunity here. And it was like quite a simple investment thesis. Like if you build products that are thoughtfully, carefully, and intrinsically designed for women, they will buy them. That's it. That was the whole thesis. But I started thinking about that and I was like, okay, this is, this is a thing. And I thought, should I start a fund? Because I've never started a company kind of, what do I know about how you figure out how to make bulletproof vests for women? 
And I'm sure there are people who know a lot about that. And could I enable that? That could be something I do. And I had a couple of chats with investors at the time. And I said, this is what I'm thinking of doing. And they all said to me, awesome. Do you want to become an investment professional? Like, do you want to learn about ownership economics? Do you want to? And I thought, oh, hmm. That's really interesting, but no, actually. I liked this idea of enabling a bunch of businesses to do cool things, but maybe not. And so I kept thinking, and a lot of things came together. I learned about the startup visa in the UK, and I was like, okay, maybe this is for me. And so poster child for public policy. So I you know, got this startup visa and I was like, I'm going to do something in women's health. I think at the time it was, I was leaning towards something focused on younger women. But in that time, I also started speaking to loads of women, um, kind of late forties, early fifties, just as part of my process to figure out like, what am I going to do next? I started speaking to, you know, senior women that I knew or experienced women that I knew <laughs> and this like concept of menopause kind of came across my life. I hadn't had any conversations about it. I'd never talked to a woman about a hot flush or a hot flash. I'd never talked about the symptoms of menopause, brain fog and heavy bleeding, incontinence, joint pain. Like I was shocked that this is something that women are going through in quiet or behind closed doors. And so it was just a confluence of kind of learning about that, reading this book and saying like, so if you're telling me there is no like amazing solution for this problem, half the population is going to go through it. There is a business here and that's what it needs. There are loads of important NGOs in this space for sure. And there are loads of important charities and Obviously, the established medical profession plays a huge role, but like actually what this needs is the type of innovation that comes out of like a private company that listens to users and says like, what is it that you need? How can we knit that together in a service that you are willing to pay for? That's how good it is. And that brings us to today. If you're trying to grow your startup and you're dealing with companies outside of the UK, you're probably going to need ISO 27001 at some point. It's not the sexiest acronym, but it's basically the global standard for proving your security practices are up to scratch, like how you handle customer data. The same goes with SOC 2. You're going to need it if you're a SaaS company. But achieving these security frameworks can be very tedious and very costly. This is where our partner Vanta comes in. Vanta automates up to 90% of the work for certifications like ISO 27001, SOC 2, GDPR, HIPAA, and more, getting you audit ready in weeks instead of months, and saving you up to 85% of the cost. And as a special offer, our listeners get 20% off Vanta. Just head to vanta.com slash secretleaders. That's V-A-N-T-A dot com slash secretleaders for 20% off. There's a link in the description. Look, you know I'm fascinated by AI, but until the machines take over, there's only one thing that's going to determine your company's fortunes. People. This isn't some kind of hollow point to make me look good. If you speak privately to any successful entrepreneur, they'll confirm it's true. So, if you're a leader of a growing business, then you should check out Personio. 
It brings together all the important HR things like hiring, onboarding, payroll data, performance reviews, and so on. You don't want loads of employees sending you emails asking for time off. You want to be able to see things objectively, like it's taking you too long to hire. You want to do performance reviews well, having clear goals for people that are logged in a centralized system. And you want to do all these things in one simple tool without having to become an HR expert. All of this is possible with Personio. Check it out at personio.com forward slash secret leaders. That's personio.com forward slash secret leaders. There's a link in the show notes. It's really interesting. I mean, there's lots of interesting things you'll be pleased to know. Um, Not just one, but if I had to pick up on one thing is so interesting uh, for a woman to be so surprised about upcoming menopause. And I think the thing that is fascinating there is, you know, it is an insight into, you know, there is obviously uh, these segmentations that we understand in our lives, male, female, whatever. But, it's uh, you know, the aging journey really is the one that it, there's an expectation that you would understand these things as a woman, but ultimately, you know, I don't have any perception of what it's like to be a 50-year-old man just because I'm a man. Um, I don't know what it's like for my body to change. I've had so many of these conversations with people, by the way, because I'm very into the longevity space. But it, it is really fascinating because, you know, people refer to like an outer body experience. This is not the memory that they had of living in this human body. It's a new experience. And so it is a new period of your life that you have to accept that you might be different, um, which is very interesting. Pre, peri, post, menopause conversation feels very new, weirdly. Um, and it comes up, just worth saying, it comes up a lot at Heights, my company, from our customers, a lot, and, and um, is peaking as well. And that, those are just normal consumers. And so I find it really interesting because it wasn't, um, it just wasn't a thing a few years ago that people talked about, but it's always been a thing. So I think this is the thing that I'm fascinated to understand and unpack with you. I agree. Oh, so many responses to what you've just said. I'm a comfortable, progressive gal. I talk about periods. Like I have a great relationship with my mom. We never talked about menopause. And not because she was hiding it from me, but because as you say, like, it's just not something that in my experience, I talked about. If anything, it's the perfect British symptom because it's very keep calm and carry on. (laughs) Oh my goodness. Yeah. It's something I guess everyone's taken on. Um, Your most successful export. So even in fundraising, the sentiment you just shared, like I felt there was an expectation or kind of a investors would like bring young women into our pitch and would be like, you know, Jenny's going to join because it's a women's health topic. And I would think Jenny is 28 and I bet she's fucking brilliant. I bet she's incredibly smart, but she has no more knowledge about menopause than, you know, you do as a young man, likely. Like, you know, we aren't born with this innate knowledge of how our body will progress. We're, you know, experiencing things day to day. (laughs) And that's kind of that. And so I think, I mean, on the investor point, it's also, you know, we all learn things about stuff we are not directly familiar with all the time. And so I, I found that kind of like, if it was an unwillingness or just a belief that you needed some kind of special tools to be able to understand this was a bit, you know, amusing. Another thing this made me think of, I saw a joke on Twitter. I can't take credit for it, but it said something like you would be forgiven for thinking COVID caused menopause. And I think in the UK from just a social media and like um, public debate perspective, 
it really did like ignite in the last few years and um, how great. And I think that's due to some like tireless campaigning from some amazing people in this country. And that is remarkable. It is not the same in the US or in South Africa or the other places where I read the newspaper. They are not talking about it in the government. Companies are not putting in place menopause policies in quite the same way. Like we really are living in a moment where where it feels like a taboo topic is changing a bit and that can only be for the better. Okay. I feel like this is I feel like this is a good build up though. So to the uninformed listener who unless they are a woman going through menopause right now may not even necessarily understand the problem. Um, But certainly up until this point, even if they are a woman going through menopause and aren't your customer, might not know about the company or product. Actually, start with just what is the company? Like, what is Vera? What is it set out to do? What is the the mission statement and plan to dominate the world and make it a better place? Vera Health is a women's health company, and we're focused on the later life health for women. So, um, you know, we want to extend healthy life expectancy. And so that's tackling the issues that really, you know, negatively impact a woman's life as she ages. And our perspective is that menopause is a really important entry point for that. And so that's, uh, here's this moment in a woman's life, probably in her late 40s, when symptoms start perimenopause. And, you know, many symptoms continue postmenopause. And so it's like up to a 10 year symptom experience where they change all the time and the type of care you need changes and your life changes. So it's a complex time when symptoms can be really disruptive. And so we're talking about mental health symptoms. So it could be anxiety or bouts of low confidence, insomnia. Imagine not sleeping very well for up to 10 years. That's pretty horrific. It's also physical symptoms like joint pain or heavy bleeding or incontinence. So it's really this like menu of potentially really disruptive things to a person's life. And a lot of those symptoms, as you know, from your work in the longevity space are really detrimental long-term, right? Not sleeping for a chunk of time is pretty bad indicator for Alzheimer's and dementia. Indicator is probably not the right word. It's a risk factor for Alzheimer's and dementia. Bone density also declines at menopause. So we're talking about an increase in osteoporosis risk. A lot of women put on weight at menopause, which is an increase in cardiovascular risk. So it's just really important to kind of take those symptoms seriously and say, this stuff is happening to you. How can we help? What can we do? So our first product is an app called Stella. And Stella helps women get the support they need for menopause in a really symptom-specific way. So a woman comes on and she tells us what's bothering her the most. So that might be difficulty sleeping or anxious feelings. It also might be incontinence and weight gain. And then we auto-generate a plan for her, a 12-week plan based on lifestyle and behavior change to help her get on top of those specific symptoms. And then we check in. And if it's not working, we try other things. And if her symptoms have changed, which is possible, then we can change the plan that she's on. Over time, we're pleased to say uh, she starts to feel better. And so we track that in the app using the clinical assessment of menopause, which is called the Green Climactric Scale. And we make sure that, you know, women are in fact feeling better and their symptom severity or frequency is going down. And obviously, you know, there's no silver bullet for menopause. There's the lifestyle and behavior changes that we focused on, which are pretty central. There's also medication. Hormone replacement therapy is going to be really important for a lot of women. 
and ultimately in-person specialist care is probably important for a lot of women too. But where we felt there was really an absence was this kind of guided lifestyle and behavior change because there's so much information out there on the internet or there's loads of magazine articles, 10 tips for this and six tips for that. And when you're in the doctor in your seven minutes, you know, you have a chat and and he or she says, and don't forget, it would be great if you could do these, you know, like seven things. We're trying to provide that support to a woman that says we're here every day because we're on your phone, which is always with you. And we are going to change as you need and make sure that that kind of lifestyle support, you know, whether it's exercise or pelvic floor activation or encouragement to quit smoking, we're there all the time answering those questions in a way that like a GP just can't and shouldn't, right? You don't call your GP every day to get a bit of motivation to, you know, increase your exercise or change your diet. And we can do that. I guess the most obvious next question is like, when did you start the company? What is attraction so far? Because it's quite early stage, right? Um, so give us, give us an idea of where you are at the moment and what are the immediate plans? Yeah, so we um, we are a COVID company. So we started fundraising in March 2020. Snap. Snap, exactly. The world was a little different. I think in the grand retelling of Vera Health, you know, the world is much more amenable to digital health than it was before. The idea that you can get, you know, this type of support on your phone, telemedicine is in a fundamentally different place. And so I, I think that like the timing could have been better, but it also could have been worse. And we're certainly, you know, we're in a world that is more amenable to what we're building. So we started fundraising in March 2020, and we raised our first round from um, Local Globe and MMC that summer, 2020. And that allowed us to build the first version of Stella, which covered six clinical pathways, most of the symptoms that uh, you can really make a difference through lifestyle and behavior change with menopause. And that's been fabulous. So then at the beginning of this year, we um, raised our second round, which was $12 million from Octopus and Optum Ventures. And that is really about what we call expanding the care pathway. So building on the success of Stella and knowing that women like it and they're willing to stick with these long-term lifestyle and behavior change plans, but adding the other parts of menopause care that are critical. So that's medication and then also teleconsultations with specialists. So the immediate goals for us are building out the medication functionality and the teleconsultation functionality so that when a woman comes to us, she gets this like complete care pathway. She gets the lifestyle and behavior change support that she needs. That's always on. That's motivational. That's always available. That flexes to her symptoms and also access to the medication that she may need um, to manage other symptoms and chatting to a specialist as needed. And that really will be an end to end menopause solution. Absolutely. Everything she needs to manage symptoms over a long period of time, reacting as her situation changes, which is a tall order, but we're really excited. And with this raise, we've been able to hire a bunch of people. So it went from being, you know, me and Rebecca, my co-founder, <laughs> to like 25 people now, which just feels so rewarding and like a totally different proposition. So... Obviously, when you're building a company with, and I say this from my own experience too, you build a company with a clear purpose in mind. And, you know, I would argue that your customer demographic is a lot more clear than mine. I mean, this is one of the beneficial um, things about having a very specific target group. You can really understand your personas within there. Obviously, giant diaspora of, of, of human beings within it, but really helpful to still at least understand 
as any product should, what pain you're solving. And that is like an exceptional opportunity to build any great product, I feel, because people will specifically tell you the problems that they need solved, which is like almost every product founder's dream. So that is a great head start, as is having a a purpose-led company. So doing some good in the world for a great group of people that people care about and want and understand that there's an imbalance and it needs to be adjusted. And you have all of that going for you. So on one side, I assume, therefore, hiring and finding great passionate people to work for you, et cetera, et cetera, all easy going. But in reality, like managing a team and doing this stuff through a pandemic, um, you're a first time founder, I'm assuming still human and you've had problems. So I'd love to know a little bit about what have been some of your biggest challenges since you started having to hire and grow a team? Yeah, no, this first time founder thing is is really important, right? So both Rebecca and I are first time founders. And what that means is we had very little kind of network in the startup space and that really did make hiring difficult in the beginning. And um, things like, I never really understood why people announced their fundraising rounds. Like, that's not the point. Building the business is the point. And then I realized that you did that so that people were like, oh, that's a company I can go to. They will be able to pay my salary for X number of months or years. And me, as skilled individual, should only go to places where they can do that. And so I think, you know, learning about how you build a talent brand such that people want to come work, want to bring their skills to you and, you know, toil in a day in front of Zoom in a pandemic, you know, and do that for you is actually like an amazing feat to convince someone, you know, I often say like in the beginning, it was Rebecca, Andrea and a PowerPoint. And like those first hires that really believed that this was an opportunity to do something huge in women's health, in tech, with digital therapeutics, like, I'm so grateful to those people that we convinced early, because, you know, it was a really significant jump to take with us. It has gotten easier over time. And I think, you know, the point you made about having a clear, like, purpose and mission, it does help, but it's helped in different ways. For some people, they're like, women's health, it's what I want to do. Count me in. Great. But there aren't those people in every single skill area. You mean that all the developers that you've been hiring aren't, like, massively keen on this one single thing? Shock horror. They are not, but... In lovely ways, I've my stereotypes about that have been proven wrong too. So what we found was a load of engineers that we interviewed, they do want to be a, at a company that is doing fundamentally good stuff. So some do care about the intricacies of menopause. I, I wouldn't want to say they didn't. But I think what they care about is like, is this company contributing to a better world? And therefore, are my skills contributing to a better world? If yes, pass go. And solving a problem. Solving a problem. Yeah. Like, is this company going to be successful? Like, people want to work somewhere that, like, the problems are going to get more interesting. The resources are going to continue to increase. And, like, we're going to have a great time solving a cool, gnarly problem. And so I think I have been so pleased that loads of people now are really keen to like get on board and solve this problem. I think we've also been successful at like explaining the complexity of menopause as a complex tech problem, right? Like you have all these different symptoms manifesting in these totally different ways in different patterns and different orders. And, um, you know, we need to build a product that can flex to that challenge. Like that's, 
that's exciting. And so we are finally in a place where we do get reach out from, from people who want to work for us, which is great. But for sure, it was a, it was those first hires took some convincing. I think the other challenges are all about building a remote company. I mean, I think they're the same across the board for all founders right now. Like, it's lovely that you can open your talent, you know, like a net to include so many more places now that it's so much easier and the tools are better and just the like acceptance of remote working has grown. And so how nice, right? Like we're based in London, but I don't for one second think that all great talent lives in London. And so being able to hire people from all over is for sure for the good of our product. But it's also exhausting to be on Zoom staring at little heads all day. It is harder to build a culture and to make like complex decisions and deliver tough messages and to show your appreciation. All of those kind of deeply or more complex emotional things are not as easy for me on Zoom or Hangouts or Teams on screen. And so that is hard. And there are moments where I think I would say this in 30 seconds to someone's face, but now I have to figure out another way to do that. And so we're trying, like everyone, the answer is not uh, simple, but it's also not, not impossible. Like there's no world where the goal of Vera is to get everyone in one room every day. That would be silly. We also plan to be huge and global. So it's like not possible. But yeah, I think it's hard. And we're certainly up to the challenge, but it is one. Do you think you are a good manager? Ooh, that is a hard question to answer in a way that doesn't feel either damning or um, immodest. So basically the perfect question. I'll take the compliment. Thank you. It was a compliment. Um, I think that I am good at identifying talent and understanding what people are good at and what they like doing. And I think that helps me be a good manager. I think that I come across as direct and I am direct. And so people can trust me that if I've said something's great, I really do mean it. And if I've said something's not good enough, I really do mean it. Like I think that I build a really good rapport with people I work with that they expect, you know, that, that there is an open and transparent conversation between us. That does not mean that I have been a good manager to everyone I have managed. <laughs> no chance. But I, I care about it a lot. I think that that is how you build a company is that you empower people to make all of the decisions that they need to make in their sphere of influence and responsibility how do you define the differences between uh, being a good manager or a good leader? And I also specifically, uh, not to target you, but because of your career at McKinsey and the Gates Foundation and uh, now running a company. In my previous jobs, I found managing to be much simpler because I was really familiar with the jobs people were doing. On a McKinsey team, the junior people on your team, you have done, or in my case, I'd done all of their jobs. I had been a business analyst. I had been an associate. I had been an engagement manager. So I could do those things where I was familiar with the trade-offs they were making, with the complexity of their jobs. I really had a perspective on how I thought I could make them shine, how they could build on their strengths, all of that. In Vera, I haven't done all, 
all the jobs. I cannot code. I am not a doctor. I am not a user researcher. And so now managing is totally different, right? Managing and leading are different, but managing is definitely different because I understand what are the outputs that I want or that I think are right for our company. But I'm working with really different vocabularies with totally different sets of skills. And that has presented a challenge that's been really exciting. It's what I like to say is at Vera, we all have the same job to get Stella out the door, but we have different skills to do that. And it actually makes for an interestingly like respectful and communal approach that's wonderful and I love about, you know, building something with this diverse kind of group of people. Leadership, I think, doesn't necessarily get affected by that nuance as much. People are people and motivating a group of people to do something that's hard and to kind of bring their best to that challenge is, I think, a bit more... I was going to say universal, but that's not quite what I mean. I think it's a, the kind of questions of different people's motivations you see in all organizations, right? I think that what I learned in my previous life, well, this is all one life, but what I re- learned in my previous jobs about how you lead a team, that feels more applicable. You know, some people are motivated by X and other motivated by Y. We know money is not enough, no matter what, but is important. That feels like a more linear path, like being a good leader, yeah, is about supporting people, making them feel comfortable to make mistakes, making them feel excited and part of the progress, sharing with them the real constraints, you know, so that the world they're operating in is as realistic as possible so that when they get to a great idea, it is in fact a great idea and, you know, and shielding the shitty stuff too. Like, I think that's a huge part of being a leader. But being a good manager, I think, is just more specific, actually, and is more kind of day-to-day support for someone to do the nitty-gritty of their job. And that has been a big learning curve for me. Yeah, I was going to ask next, like, what are some of the most interesting things you've learned um, about yourself or about your, uh, your general journey as a human being now that you're an entrepreneur as well? Because it's different, isn't it? Oh, it's so different. The responsibility of starting a company and convincing people to, you know, bring their lives or their working lives over to you, you know, paying salaries that in turn pay school fees and all of that. It's a huge honor and a huge responsibility. And so that is just a different level of seriousness than I'd ever had before. And it's great. I think other huge learning was just the fundraising process. Like, I don't know what I thought it would be like. I hadn't given it much thought before. I thought, well, here's this good idea and here's this big market. And so let's go ask some people for money to do this. And the process is just, you know, longer and harder than I thought. It is both as simple as that, like, you know, explaining the problem you're trying to solve over and over and over and over again until you find the person who agrees with agrees that it's a problem, agrees with roughly how you're trying to solve it, and agrees with the amount of money you think you need to do it. But I think the kind of nuances of that and like how it's done and all of that, like it just, you know, that's been a huge learning. Maybe I should have listened to more podcasts with founders. Yeah, right. Yeah, you could have saved yourself a lot of time. 
Do you feel like you struggle to ask? So one of the things I'd love to know is, do you feel like you struggle to ask your colleagues for feedback? Like, how do you feel like you've settled into the relationship of being an employee, now being an employer? I'm sort of asking this, you know, even from my own perspective, we have a very, very clear feedback culture at Heights. And, you know, we reward people and punish them for not giving feedback, for not asking feedback. You know, it is one of the categorical things we measure and manage in performance yet the founders always get the least. And it's not from a lack of, you know, or anything. It's just, it is just the nature of how it is. So I'm wondering if I can pick up any tips from you. The feedback conversation that I'm having with myself right now is in kind of two different categories. So the one is, I came from an organization where the feedback um, culture was big, but it was, and it was incredibly structured. Uh, And there was, you know, a professional development team, you know, an HR team of hundreds around the world that ran it. So, you know, things happened on a semi-annual review process. Things happened after every single engagement, you got an engagement performance review, you know, and then that was like in a system, stuff was, you were rated. I can't set up that scale of a system at my, I shouldn't, and I can't set up that scale of system at my little startup. There are some things from that system that I have taken forward, which is like, everyone should know where they stand. No one should be surprised that they are doing well or that they are doing poorly. I think a structured process is another thing, way pared down, but people should also know how they're being evaluated and kind of what's expected for their role. And I think that that's something we have to get serious about right now. Um, We're like at an inflection point where that really matters um, for our team. The other thing I'm trying to take forward is this idea that everyone can't be a rock star on every dimension. That's like not the goal. Like there are, you know, this kind of strengths-based feedback. Like what are people excellent at? There's totally a bar, right? You have to be good enough at a, lo- at a load of things. But what matters is, are you really excellent at a few things? And that's what we like rely on you for. So those are some of the like themes that I think I've taken from super structured highly resourced feedback systems and brought into into Vera. The other kind of thread of feedback that I'm thinking through right now is that I think it's a really overused word that doesn't quite, or that means a lot of things and in some ways nothing. So what I kind of think is, you know, in your job, when you talk to your manager or your colleagues, everything they say is not feedback. Some of it is coaching, so like helping you get better at something. Some of it is advice. Use, don't use. Here's a, you know, a thought from someone who's done this before. Some of it is instruction. As your manager, this is what you need to do to do your job. And then feedback is either all of those things or it's like something much more specialized that is like, as someone who cares about you as a manager and someone who needs you to progress in this role, these are the things that I've given a ton of thought to and that I have decided I want to work with you to get better at. To me, that's feedback. Like these are the things we collectively agree we are going to focus on. Me as manager is going to provide role modeling, support where needed, seek out classes where needed, like, and we're gonna in three months, six months, whenever we think about this again, we're actually going to say, we decided you needed to get better at this. Are you better? And that's like quite specific. And I think that's really important. 
where I think some of this like feedback culture conversation has gotten though, is like compliments and complaints. Like, you know, I want to tell you every time you irritate me, or I want to tell you that you did a great job, you did a great job, you did a great job. And like, that's not feedback. Feedback's actually much harder and much more intense. And so I think, you know, I haven't figured out how we build the best quality feedback culture at Vera yet, but I know it takes like a ton of time and real dedication and people really trusting each other because also feedback from someone that you don't trust, like I, I don't think goes very far. I think that vulnerability that I trust that this person has my best interest at heart and wants to make me better. And then also the vulnerability from the manager that's like, it is my responsibility to help this person. And I got to figure out exactly what's going to help this person, not what would have helped the last person I managed at this. Feedback is so important, but I do think it's an overused word. What's like really important is helping all of our employees really achieve what they've set out for themselves and what we need in a business. My last question to you, Andrea, what's the best uh, piece of advice you've ever been given? I think the best piece of advice I was given at work as a young person was <laughs> there are no rules for high performers. And at the time and in retrospect, it's like, I'm not sure it's like a lovely thing to say, but the way I interpreted it was like doing my absolute best and working hard and being good was always going to open more opportunities So that kind of just encouragement and make no mistake, like great talent and hard work is not always rewarded. There is so much stuff going on in the world. And so my point here is not to say like, if you work hard, it all works out. Like that is so obviously not my point, I hope, but doing a really good job of something is almost always the right answer if you want to stay at that organization. So I think that that was a very good piece of advice. And then I think the best piece of advice, which is quite a cliche that I've gotten as a founder, though, is that like a hungry mouth is never fed. As a founder, you or I found I just need to ask for things, right? And so, you know, whether that's kind of in sales or in fundraising or however, or trying to get an amazing, you know, candidate to join us, like keep asking, keep convincing, you know, keep trying even after it might feel a bit persistent, like the stakes are just too high when you're starting something, like you have to give it your all. And so, you know, whenever I get the like 37th sales email from someone, I always think, good for you. Yeah, fortune favors the bold, but also certainly the persistent. The bold and persistent. I mean, they're pretty close. Amazing. Thank you so much for your time. Next week on Secret Leaders. Insomnia was the worst thing that happened to me by a mile. It was worse than my depression. It was worse than anything that I've experienced. Because it's actually the first time where, even though I have a very positive mindset, like, I'm going to go to therapy, I'm going to have sleep therapy, I'm going to try calm, I'm going to try CBT, like specific around sleep and insomnia. I'm going to the doctor. So when none of them work, you actually then start to think, okay, this is my reality. This is life now. That was me. Sound familiar? Because next week, I'm going to be back in the hot seat being grilled by Will, our head of podcasts, and this is going to be all about my experiences with mental health and entrepreneurship. Tune in or you'll miss out. Thanks for listening. I'm Dan Murray-Serta, and I was the host of this episode. Editing was done by Lower Street Media with Will Stolomon, our head of podcasts, bringing it all together.